What's up, Barbell Lifestyle Podcast family, and welcome back to the podcast. It is absolutely crazy. Christina and I have been making episodes for over three years now, once a week for 52 weeks for three years, and we haven't missed a week yet. Now, our goal in 2024 is to bring you the best guests, the best topics, and to be able to educate you to the fullest. Now, in order to do that, we are taking a couple of weeks off in December of 2023, if you're listening to this as we release these episodes, off of actively recording to rest our brains and our bodies and come back even stronger for you in the new year. And so we decided to pull some of our favorite episodes of all time for you with some of our top guest speakers that we've ever had on the show to finish out 2023. Now it's been one, maybe even two years for some of these episodes since they've aired. So if you're new to the podcast, you're going to absolutely love these. And if you're a veteran, you're going to love refreshing on these topics. So Enjoy, sit back and get ready for an amazing interview. And if you haven't already, please share this podcast with your friends and your family to help us kick off and grow in 2024 and leave a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify to show your support. Also, we love and appreciate your feedback. So we would love to hear what episode topics you'd want to hear from us in the new year. So thanks again for listening. And we hope you enjoy this throwback episode just as much as we do. What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Barbell Lifestyle Podcast, and today we are really excited to talk to you guys about metabolic adaptation, is your metabolism broken or is that just a myth, with the man who has given this topic a lot of traction in the industry, Dr. Eric Trexler, PhD, pro-natural bodybuilder, researcher, coach, podcast host and director of education at Stronger by Science and co-author of Mass. So welcome, Dr. Eric Trexler. You have a lot of stuff behind your name. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a quick introduction, or if you can even keep it quick, uh, of you and how you got into this field or even just you know research and, and exercise science in general. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. <laughs> Um, and I feel like you kind of already nailed the introduction. I think you hit all the important stuff. Uh, yeah, growing up, I was really into fitness, a variety of different sports. Uh, eventually found that I loved training for sports even more than I loved the sports themselves. I started to realize that when I was like 16 um, and kind of knew that I was, I was always going to do something in fitness. Uh, the question was how directly relevant would it be? Would I go be you know, an orthopedic doctor or a physical therapist or an occupational therapist. I was thinking a lot about allied health fields and then, uh, you know, something that would involve something kind of related to fitness in the human body. And then uh, I got involved in undergraduate research when I was like probably 20. And uh, I didn't realize that you could just do research on fitness topics. I thought that was pretty cool when I first tried it. Uh, got involved with some fun projects, uh, went to grad school, got involved with more fun projects, some of which were related to metabolic adaptation. And, you know, I, I think you pretty much covered everything else with the bodybuilding, mass, stronger by science, uh, and all that stuff. And by the way, please call me Eric. Uh, literally, no one calls me doctor except for 
when my mother sends me mail, she addresses, <laughs> uh, she she puts doctor on the line. Uh, but aside from that, nobody does. Perfect. All right. We'll keep that in mind for sure. But yeah, that's a great background. I'm very curious. Did any of your first grad school research have anything to do with this topic or like was it completely random or completely like something different? So as an undergrad student, I had no autonomy. Uh, you know, it's just like, hey, what are people doing in the lab? You can help out with what was going on. And I shouldn't have had any autonomy. I didn't have any good ideas. Uh, so <laughs> it was good to, uh, you know, I think a lot of people want to dive in and say, okay, I want to run this exact study. But it's good to get some experience and learn from other projects before you're trying to take the steering wheel. Uh, but by the time I got to grad school, uh, I had a little bit more autonomy when it comes to the direction of research and what kind of studies we were doing uh, more than most I, I will say as a grad student a lot of grad students don't have that kind of uh, freedom when it comes to topic selection uh, and oddly enough the first paper I wrote as a grad student was a review paper on metabolic adaptation so oh, wow. it was looking at the evidence available and at the time there wasn't really a ton that was super relevant to athletic populations uh, and everything kind of built from there. And we were able to do some studies of our own. We were actually going in and doing experiments and collecting data um, on some populations of interest. So we got to do some studies in bodybuilders and physique athletes and things like that. So it, uh, yeah, surprisingly early in my career, I wrote a paper on metabolic adaptation and then I kind of got typecast and then everyone said, oh, you're the metabolic adaptation guy. Uh, <laughs> and it was just because it was the first thing I really did. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I, it's a topic that it was the first thing I did because it was uh, it was very important to me. I thought it was very fascinating, and I was happy to continue doing research in that area and to continue talking about it. I think it's uh, it's an important topic. It's relevant to a lot of people, and there are a lot of misconceptions, and those are usually the best topics to to discuss frequently. Had you already started bodybuilding when you were in grad school? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, that's a, an important bit of context. So uh, I did two bodybuilding competitions uh, within a month of starting grad school. So when my advisor said anything that you'd like to write about, I was like, yeah, why is dieting so terrible? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I looked like I was dying. I felt like I was dying uh, being hyperbolic. But I mean, I'd, I'd gone through a really rough prep leading into grad school. And so it coincided with an opportunity to dig deep um, uh, more academically into the topic after kind of experiencing it anecdotally. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. And I know I've listened to a couple other podcasts that you've done. And one of the things that you talk about is, and we've had a, um, a couple other, actually a lot of researchers on, and they talk about how <laughs> it's really difficult to do studies specifically on bodybuilders because it's it's so tough. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, but a lot of it is funding. Oh, yeah. Um, funding is, for that type of research, is very hard to come by. Um, and I understand why. Uh, you know, supplement research, there are supplement companies that want that research done because then they can make science-based marketing claims. There's nothing wrong about, you know, people talk about that like it's shady. I, I like that supplement companies want their products tested. Uh, but there's funding there. And then when it comes to really important public health issues, there's a kind of a society level interest in solving these problems uh, and creating better treatments. But bodybuilding falls into that area where it's very difficult for one group to commercialize it uh, and say, 
you know, we want to fund this specific thing. So yeah, it, it's really hard to uh, to come across any pots of money where you can say, oh, I'm going to do bodybuilding research. So the money is one thing, but also the logistics. It, that was a surprising challenge we ran into because what we wanted to do for one of our studies was look at the post-competition window. But you know, if you're involved with physique athletes, you know that some people do one show a season, some people do a few shows a season. Uh, some people compete every spring, every fall, they're just kind of constantly competing. So the question is, well, how do you get a glimpse at an actual off season? You know, we're kind of interested in when people are really hanging it up for a few months or for a, a, a year or more and saying, you know, I'm done competing. We wanted to watch that weight gain process that tends to occur. So we had to find people that were finishing their season and taking an extended off season at the same show because we had to fly in to do the measurement. So money aside, the logistics, uh, it was a really challenging area of research to work in. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the fact that we had to fly in to do the data collection, yeah. it's like I was in Chapel Hill. It's not uh, the mecca of bodybuilding, exactly. There, I couldn't find any bodybuilders in Chapel Hill. Uh, I could find a few, but not many. So we had to go into Tampa, which is like, you know, a bodybuilding town for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, very, very challenging uh, line of research to work in. Yeah, Super not interesting. Only that, yeah, yeah, for sure. Not only that, but like the logistics of having, you know, everyone has a different protocol. So like there's not that many controls. So it really is observational research and then all these caveats included on top of that. Yeah. And I mean, even just thinking about things, if you want to catch people at their most depleted for a baseline measurement, some people that's going to be the Monday before the show. Some people it's going to be the Friday or the Thursday before the show if they're doing carb, you know, front loading or back loading. Uh, and then a funny thing that, man, I, I actually really felt bad about this. Uh, we did our measurements. We're thinking nobody wants anything too invasive. We have to have something that's portable. So that kind of guided all of our measurement selection for one of the studies I have in mind. So we did body composition via ultrasound. I totally didn't even think, you know, we were trying to schedule people whenever we could get them, you know, within the parameters of our study design. Uh, so we were kind of, our hands were tied there. And I didn't even think, uh, some people already had their base coat of tan on. <laughs> and uh, if you ever need to get your tanning product off as a physique athlete, just get some ultrasound gel. Uh, I've never seen tanning product come off of a body like that. Uh, and the tanning person actually found us in the lobby of the competition because we, you know, we were, we were so stoked that they let us do our study and like, you know, we came to the competition to support and enjoy uh, the show and the tanning person came and found us and was like, <laughs> I, I need to talk to you because uh, we made her life so difficult. But yeah, didn't even think to plan for that one. That's oh my gosh, so funny. That's, hilarious. <laughs> that's awesome. So let's get into metabolic adaptation, the topic at hand today. And I think the best way to introduce this topic is kind of just with the marketing that we see around it and the you broke your metabolism by dieting too hard or for too long. And now there's all these coaches and gurus out there who can fix it. 
And so we have the problem of metabolic adaptation, sometimes coined as metabolic damage by some people to try to use that scare factor. Um, and today we're going to, you know, bust the myth and, and break some beliefs about whether or not that is real, what actually happens, and to what degree does that actually happen? Because I think that's one of the most interesting parts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you want me to just dive into a, a summary of it? Oh, no, you just look like you're about to say something. So I was like, oh, I'm going to no, let him No, I get that a in. lot. Greg, <laughs> Greg is very... So my business partner, Greg Knuckles, we report we record a, a podcast in person. And it, it took about six months for him to realize that my face always looks like I'm about to say something. <laughs> so I apologize in advance. Okay, yeah, no worries. But yeah, let's uh, let's start with what is metabolic adaptation? Could you just start with that? Yeah, so metabolic adaptation, I, I guess, is kind of most easily described at the surface level as an anecdote. So you're in your off season or just your kind of normal day-to-day maintenance uh, phase uh, of your training. And then you say, okay, I'm going to do a fat loss phase, a pretty intense one, Uh, you know, really try to lose a pretty significant amount of fat. And you might get to a point late in that process when you're pretty lean and you've been doing it for a while and your daily calorie intake is pretty low. And you're like, I knew my calories would get low, but these seem these seem really low. That That's usually when people start getting on Google and searching around and being like, I, I expected calorie reduction, but I didn't expect this. And so like for context, it's not atypical for me when I'm competing, getting close to a show to have days where I'm around 1500 calories a day, uh, sometimes even maybe a little bit lower for brief periods of time. Uh, And so that is kind of the presentation, the clinical presentation of of metabolic adaptation. And then there's this whole host of things that come with it. So speaking, you know, talking about physique athletes or people who are getting to that level of leanness, it's not just that their calorie intake is getting low, but they're also noticing neuroendocrine side effects related to that. So they might notice, I feel cold all the time. And then if they check, they'll find that their thyroid hormone is extremely low. They might notice, uh, I don't really have the same libido that I used to have. And then they might find that their sex hormones are are uh, lower than they otherwise would be. Uh, female competitors might find that they, they no longer have a typical menstrual cycle for them. And then they you know will find endocrine uh, uh, evidence to kind of back that up if they go get tested. So we see this, uh, this kind of cluster of things that tells us, hey, something's going on here metabolically. You know, I'm eating very few calories, but not losing weight as quickly as I would expect based on the calorie number. And I've got these neuroendocrine things going on, going on alongside that. And so if we want to really get past the surface level and trace it back to the root cause, it really all comes down to the hypothalamus. Okay. So the hypothalamus is a part of the brain with a lot of different roles. I mean, it has so many critical roles in human physiology. And I mean, physiology in general, not just for humans, but, uh, you know, temperature regulation, for example, uh, is, uh, is certainly controlled by the hypothalamus. But when we focus on the hypothalamus in the fitness world, one of the reasons we focus on it is because it does a lot of work when it comes to integrating information about energy status. Uh, so when energy status is low, uh, usually in the form of low body fat stores and a large caloric deficit, 
those signals ultimately are relayed back to the brain. And leptin is one of the most critical signals uh, associated with that. So leptin goes to the hypothalamus. It might be really high. It might be really low. And that, that's a great way for the body to get an idea of what our general energy stores are like. It's kind of like looking at the little gas meter in your car and saying, okay, how, how are we doing here? And so when we are in this state where body fat is really low, we're in a big caloric deficit, some combination of those things, leptin tends to get very low. The hypothalamus senses that and the hypothalamus controls a lot of different things related to our energy expenditure. And it's kind of like the hypothalamus decides like, you know, when your phone goes onto like the energy saver mode, when your battery gets low and it's like, well, let's not refresh all those background apps all the time. And, you know, let's get really thoughtful about how we're using our energy supply. So when the hypothalamus gets this message of low energy status or low energy availability, uh, we start getting really conservative about exactly where we're spending energy and some of the hormonal effects that we see are kind of related to that. So we kind of use some dimmer switches and we say, you know, let, let's kind of tone down just like general heat production a little bit. Uh, let, let's tone down, um, uh, you know, anything related to uh, libido uh, and, and, you know, sex and all those things. Let, let's tone that down. Uh, let's make sure that we're not utilizing any any energy that would be considered non-essential things that aren't contributing to survival so we have all these different endocrine effect, uh, effects that are reducing our energy expenditure in a variety of different ways uh, and, and so one of the things i found so fascinating is you know even looking at mitochondria themselves like what we will see that mitochondria all the way down at this microscopic level become more efficient with the way they use energy and a lot of that has to do with thyroid hormone. So as thyroid hormone drops a lot, the mitochondria tend to get really conservative with the way that they are using and conserving energy. Uh, so all the way from, you know, up top at the hypothalamus, all the way down these hormonal uh, cascades that lead to, you know, thyroid hormone and sex hormones and things like that. Uh, and then all the way down into the microscopic level, we see these energy conservation mechanisms going on. So some of the changes we see uh, with metabolic adaptation, when we see these really low calorie intakes and we're like, why are my calories that low? Some of that is adaptive in nature. That's where the hypothalamus comes in and it starts kind of tweaking those dimmer switches. Some of it's not adaptive in nature. You know, some of that is just like, hey, you weigh less than you used to. You don't need as many calories to, to just get throughout the day. Uh, so there's adaptive and non-adaptive components, but that is metabolic adaptation in a nutshell. We've got these endocrine side effects that are a little bit unpleasant. We feel cold. Uh, we, we, we feel generally, sometimes our sleep will get impacted in a negative way. Uh, low libido, menstrual disturbance. Um, you know, th there's kind of this whole... Uh, ripple effect where the hypothalamus kind of uh, creates this cascade of outcomes that are generally unfavorable and, and are generally unpleasant, which is why it's such a, a commonly discussed topic.
Yeah, that's a great summary. And I think one of the things that I wanted to touch on is because Christina and I, we both bodybuild and we've both done a number of shows before, but the population that we work with and the population that I think we primarily speak to, I think we do have some competitors or at least a good percentage, but a lot of our listeners are lifestyle clients, um, some of our some of our own clients, but just people who generally want to live a healthier lifestyle, maybe you know have a better relationship with food and understand nutrition and fitness better. And I think when we're talking about metabolic adaptation in a contest prep dieting context. It's, you know, we we have someone who's regimented on a diet for months at a time and they're not breaking with breaking that diet at all. And they are really, really, really lean. Uh, but then we have the other side of it, the lifestyle side, where I think we have people who are, you know, maybe not quite so lean, but maybe they still are low body fat, or maybe they've just been really dieting for a while, but maybe unsuccessfully, and maybe they have periods of yo-yoing or, you know, regaining weight back and losing it over and over again. Now, how might metabolic adaptation, would you say, apply to that population as well? Well, it will apply to some extent. And, you know, one of the uh, the outcomes that I didn't mention, I talked about all these different uh, hormonal effects th that are kind of a consequence here. Uh, another class of hormones that tends to get impacted uh, with metabolic adaptation is the hungers that give us information, er, the hormones that give us information about hunger and satiety. And so metabolic adaptation, uh, this whole kind of syndrome of related uh, effects and side effects, um, it has short-term and long-term inputs. And, and so I think the most extreme instances of metabolic adaptation that you're going to observe with the largest effects, that's in the people who are really, really lean and in a big caloric deficit, the leanness is giving them that long-term information about energy stores. And the caloric deficit is giving the short-term information about how much energy do we have available today without breaking into all this stored energy in the form of adipose tissue or body fat. So uh, there are these kind of two different mechanisms that both relate here. And so if someone has uh, a significant amount of body fat still to lose and they aren't particularly lean, they can still see a lot of these things happening if they uh, are really pushing their caloric deficit. If, it, if it's a really big caloric deficit, they might start to see some of the, these things occurring. And the reason I bring up the hunger and satiety hormones is because we can see a cycle where a person says, how am I not losing more on this caloric intake? Uh, it's kind of a perplexing observation. And a lot of times what's going on is there is some metabolic adaptation at play and there's some dysregulation of hunger and satiety hormones. Adherence can be threatened. And so there might be a big deficit for some number of days in a row, uh, some period of a caloric surplus related to overeating uh, uh, relative to the calorie goal. And then, you know, they're, they're thinking, well, I was on this deficit for this entire time period, but there were intermittent periods where there was a big influx of additional calories as well. So some, you know, there, there is 
some of this stuff happening when it comes to me metabolic adaptation, even if you're not already totally shredded. And in fact, most of the evidence we have about it is from people who are, you know, have a BMI over 30 and are involved in weight loss trials. So absolutely, the mechanisms are still at play. They just seem to be most pronounced and most severe when you've got the short-term and the long-term inputs contributing. Um, so Marissa had kind of hit on what I was going to, where I was going to take this next. But I think the first thing I wanted to say is a lot of clients, I think they don't understand how low sometimes they might need to get to reach their certain goals that they have or a physique that they have in mind. And because of social media, I think a lot of people think, oh, if I have to do this, that means that, you know, my metabolism is broken. And then there are some people, and of course, contest prep takes everything to a more extreme level, but they think that, you know, their coach is quote unquote bad if they have to eat, you know, a thousand calories and do two hours of cardio to get shredded. Um, so they're, you know, two different uh, kind of populations at play here. But I think for a majority of our clients, they, you know, for some women and for some people, they do have to get pretty low in order to see the type of weight loss that they're in the physique goals that they want. Yeah. Uh, I have so much to say about that. I'm going to try to be <laughs> concise. Uh, but you know, I, I was hanging out with Eric Helms, who's a co-author of, of the mass research review with me. And we didn't really know each other that well, but we were both speaking at an event in Finland. And, uh, you know, we were chatting about bodybuilding. And I was like, you know, Eric, I got to admit something. Uh, I didn't really take that next step as a bodybuilder until I started adopting some foolishly low caloric intakes late in my prep. And he said, you know what? Me too. And so... <laughs> It was one of those things where as a as a coach and as someone I was literally invited out there to speak about physiological aspects of bodybuilding. And even I was lacking that confidence. I was like, is it normal and okay to be this low for me? Or am I just way worse at this than everybody else from a, a planning person? Like, what strategy am I missing? But the more I talk to people who do well on stage, it's a pretty common observation that, yeah, sometimes calories do have to get pretty low. And some of that is because your body size goes down a lot. Your organ mass probably goes down a lot. Organs are, are very active tissues per, uh, per kilogram of mass. Um, and part of it is the fact that if, if you think, okay, well, maybe my total daily energy expenditure is going to go down to... Uh, only, you know, it, it might go down by 25% uh, or, or more. And then you're thinking, well, if I'm in an active fat loss phase, I might need to be, in, you know, inducing a deficit of an additional 250, 500, 750,000 calories, depending on the rate of weight loss I'm trying to achieve. And so you can start to see how you, you put your total daily energy expenditure, you shrink that, and then you cut away for the deficit. These, these numbers get really low. And one of the other things that I think is worth uh, noting is I saw that there's that big paper a couple of weeks ago by uh, Ponser and colleagues looking at total daily energy expenditure in a huge population. Of, it was like, or a huge sample. It was like 6,000 uh, participants, I think, ranging from infants to people in their 90s. And it looked at total daily energy expenditure measured via doubly labeled water, very, very thorough analysis. 
And there were some people in the sample whose, you know, their total daily energy expenditure as, you know, adults was, you know, 1,200, 1,300 calories a day. So if you're trying to lose weight and that's your total daily energy expenditure, your, your calorie intake is going to be pretty low to, to induce any uh, measurable degree of fat loss that, that you can see on a, on a week-to-week basis. So I do think it's unfortunate that people paint with too broad a brush and they say, if you're eating less than X number of calories, whatever the whatever it happens to be that month on Instagram, there's always like a number <laughs> that's floating around. But they'll say, if you're under this, you know, that is absolutely insane, never defensible. Your coach should be in jail for telling you to eat that. Like there's a lot of overreaction there, but you know, uh, an unfortunate reality is that in, in this is going to, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way. To achieve extreme physiques, sometimes we do have to have relatively extreme strategies in specifically caloric intakes. And I don't want it to seem that I am uh, saying, hey, you got to want it. And, you know, the more extreme, the better. You got to do that. Like, it's not um, trying to frame those extreme intakes as a positive thing we should aim for, but rather uh, an unfortunate reality for some people who are on the lower end of that uh, of, of that spectrum of total daily energy expenditure. So unfortunately, sometimes digging really deep into a deficit requires some intakes that are low. If we can do a successful diet and achieve our physique goals without getting to those extreme intakes, that's always the best case scenario. But it's not always an option, uh, which can be frustrating. Yeah. And I think the other thing to keep in mind too, the amount of time that those extreme protocols are set in place. So doing it for two weeks versus two months, even, you know, more than that too. But yeah, absolutely. I think those are really good takeaways. Yeah. And I think, you know, I do see it from the kind of the marketing perspective, because I'll be honest, I've done it. I've been like, hey, 1200 calories ain't it because, you know, for for the majority of the people that at least I think we're talking to a lot of the time we find clients and, and women especially eating very, very low calories and not getting anywhere. And it's because of that adherence that you mentioned. So the adherence is super high Monday through Friday, eating a thousand calories or whatever it is. And then on the weekends, just totally binging because it just wasn't something that they could sustain. So a lot of times the solution for that type of person is a higher calorie approach where they're still in a deficit, but maybe just a modest one that they can stick to. So I've totally done that before with kind of that intention. But I do think that just vilifying the person for or vilifying a person or a coach for prescribing those types of calories, especially in a contest prep situation, is not a very productive practice. Um, Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think, um, you know, there's no single caloric intake that is the absolute lower level for all competitors of all sizes uh, with, with all different, you know, metabolic rates. So like there are going to be times where we have to say, okay, a, a coach is recommending this intake. Uh, the person seems to be as well as one could be in that stage of prep. You know, they're doing okay. And this coach has a track record of having happy, successful, healthy athletes. You know, I think in that context, you have to give, uh, you know, cut them a little bit of slack and at least at least be open. Like maybe there's a reason that caloric intake is getting this low for this short period of time. But I will say if you're a coach, like there is a, a spectrum of people's resting metabolic rates uh, or total daily energy expenditures we can expect to see. 
if you're a coach, I think you do have a responsibility at a certain level of intake to kind of do what I call an energy audit where you would say, okay, uh, like I I had this come up with a client not too, not too long ago, but I said, I can't, I can't tell a person your size to have a calorie intake this low. Something is off here. And we did, you know, we said, okay, let's go through your daily energy expenditure, physical activity, uh, you know, training specific, but also outside of training. How active are you? How active is your job day to day? How much sedentary time do we have? Uh, And now let's talk really in detail about your tracking. What happens to the oil that's that's in the pan there when you're cooking? You know, those, you know non-caloric uh sprays that have absolutely have calories how much of those are we using you know so you start getting into the details and you know people with kids one of the things you'll see a lot is what happens to the kids food when they don't finish their meal you know and usually it's like well and like i i can't stand food waste so i i would do the same thing but they're like oh well i i eat it and i go well, are, are we counting that? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, we're not. <laughs> so it, it's totally relatable, totally understandable. And the most important thing is as a coach, you're there to be supportive. You are there to find strategies and solutions. You're there to uh, help people understand, help people identify and find these areas where their adherence maybe isn't as good as they believe. It's not that they're uh, trying to be misleading about their adherence, but in many cases, it's like, oh, I didn't even think about that. I do have like three chicken nuggets, uh, you know, <laughs> every night because my, my kid didn't finish them. So, so yeah, I, I think, uh, I always try to cut some slack when I see somebody who ha- has a, a, you know, a really solid reputation and, and a lot of, uh, you know, a track record of success in treating their athletes really well. I, I cut some slack there and I don't rush to judgment, but I also would say if you're a coach and you're starting to train other people, you should have for every client you have, you should have a number in mind where you say, if we start getting this low, we, we need to figure out why the spreadsheet is reflecting an intake that low. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, so we've kind of answered the question, what is metabolic adaptation? And you might be like quivering in your seat listening to this, like, oh my God, it's real. Like I'm screwed. I'm absolutely screwed. There's all these things that happen to my physiology that change and how am I ever going to lose the weight that I want to lose without eating, you know, sub a thousand calories. But I think one thing that I've learned about metabolic adaptation over the years of watching your content and a bunch of other leading researchers in the field talk about these topics is that there is some stuff that we can do about it. And like you said, there's the adaptive and then there's the non-adaptive stuff there. Um, And you also mentioned the long-term and the short-term. So the short-term is the energy availability we have now and the short and the long-term is how low is our body fat and what are those adaptations with our body fat percentage being that low. And so probably for a lot of the people that are listening to this, they're probably not 5% body fat. Like I would hope that 90% of our audience isn't at 5% body fat. Um, So there's probably some stuff that we can do about our energy expenditure to mitigate the amount of metabolic adaptation that is hindering our weight loss. So I want to get into and have you describe the different components of our energy expenditure and walking our audience through which of those things we can control versus the ones that we might not be able to control. Yeah. So, you know, we've got our resting or our basal metabolic rate. Um, Sometimes people get really bent out of shape if you use those synonymously, uh, but it's really (laughs) just a minor detail of how they're assessed. So I I use them synonymously. Uh, 
but you know, resting basal metabolic rate, this is just like, you think about if you measured the amount of energy you spend, if you just woke up one day and said, I'm not getting out of bed today, I'll lay here and I'll be awake, but I am not getting out of bed. I'm not eating. I'm not moving. That's pretty much your, your resting or basal energy expenditure. Uh, not much we can do about that. Um, that that's usually going to be mostly an indication of just how much fat-free mass we have with a, just a little bit of genetics kind of sprinkled in there. Some people just do have a little bit higher uh, resting or basal metabolic rate. We've got uh, the thermic effect of feeding, which uh, not much we can do about that. That is basically the energy. You know, when we consume food, the process of literally consuming it and then digesting it and absorbing it and metabolizing those nutrients. Some of those processes do cost energy. Uh, now, the thermic effect of feeding changes a little bit if we drastically change our macronutrient distribution, our macronutrient breakdown, but we shouldn't be changing our macronutrient breakdown just to uh, try to make a small impact on thermic effect of feeding. For, for all intents and purposes, it's not meaningfully modifiable. And it will tend to go down uh, if we have a really successful weight loss phase because we're eating less food, uh, presumably, as that process goes on. Uh, same thing, resting metabolic rate will tend to go down, not even necessarily as an adaptive thing, but just because we weigh less. There, there's less uh, metabolically active tissue consuming energy at rest. Uh, What's interesting about the resting component is there actually is an adaptive drop when you're actively in a caloric deficit. So if you're dieting pretty hard, resting metabolic rate will tend to be lower. But if you just get back to uh, energy balance, so not a deficit, not a, sur not a surplus, but just eating to maintain weight, uh, that adaptive drop uh, in resting energy expenditure tends to pretty much go away. So uh, not much we can do there to modify it when we're actively losing weight. Uh, then there's act, uh, exercise activity thermogenesis. That's just the, the energy we're expending when we are doing structured, intentional exercise. You know, lifting in the gym, going for a, a run, a bike ride, rowing, whatever the case may be. Uh, that will, there's some evidence to say that that will drop a little bit from an adaptive perspective. Um, not much we can do about that, but, but that probably will drop just a, a little bit. And then the, the biggest one is non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT. And NEAT is the biggest one we can modify. It's also uh, conveniently the biggest one that's impacted during metabolic adaptation. So, uh, you know, like I said, during a weight loss effort uh, that, that involves some pretty substantial weight loss, we might find that, uh, you know, total daily energy expenditure might drop, I don't know, 25% or so. Obviously, that's a rough estimate that that depends on a lot of different factors about half of that will not be adaptive it's it's just you know the things we've already talked about but about half of that will be adaptive in nature and of that adaptive component probably 80 90 percent is going to be due to reductions in non-exercise activity thermogenesis and this is things like fidgeting uh involuntary movement throughout the day postural energy expenditure just the energy that goes into maintaining posture um, and little things around the house, you know, vacuuming, sweeping, taking the trash out. Th those all are physical activity that doesn't fall under the umbrella of structured intentional exercise. Uh, so that is the component that is absolutely, uh, under a great deal of influence, uh, 
from the hypothalamus when 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 leptin gets low and the hypothalamus is getting that low energy signal, we do see that non-exercise activity drops off quite a bit, um, which is a, a really fascinating. One, one of my favorite examples of that was uh, there, there was a study uh, called the Biosphere Experiment where it, it was basically the plot of that movie called Biodome with Pauly Shore. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, literally no one does because no one saw it. it <laughs> I think it had a single digit rating on Rotten Tomatoes, maybe. It was terrible. But they go into this dome and it's supposed to be like a self-sustaining uh, environment where they plant all their own food and they grow it and they eat it and it's all good. It's kind of like creating a little environment so that we could go to Mars and, and live there. But uh, basically they were trying to do that and uh, they couldn't grow enough food. They didn't do very well. So it basically became a weight loss study and, and their energy expenditure went down quite a bit. But uh, it was one of those things where just those things that aren't even structured exercise, not resting, but just day-to-day -day activity, moving around, going about your, your kind of mundane daily tasks, those will change quite a, uh, quite a lot in a way that can impact energy expenditure. So when I was in grad school competing in bodybuilding, you know, if my head was just like laying on my desk, I was like, oh, Eric is not spending energy on posture anymore. He's just kind of <laughs> sprawled out on his desk, which I was there quite a few times. But uh but those, those are the different uh, kind of components of total daily energy expenditure. And like I said, non-exercise activity is the most modifiable by far. And one of the easiest things we could do there is simply to avoid excessive sedentary time and set some little goals and benchmarks throughout the day. So if you're listening to this and you're working with clients, you have to know your client and say, what is going to be a way that we can approach this that is least annoying, least bothersome, least cumbersome. You know, we don't want it to be psychologically really frustrating. We don't want it to be something that's a huge burden that follows them around all day. So some people do a great job with step counts. That's fine. Other people want something want something that's a little bit less, like they don't want to look at their watch every day and be like, oh man, I'm so behind. It, it That could be a, a stressful thing. And so in some cases we'll say, okay, let's forget the step count. Let's just say every two hours, get up, walk for 10 minutes if you have a type of job that allows for that. So there's a lot of different ways that we can uh, modify non-exercise activity thermogenesis and finding the right strategy really comes down to the personality type of the individual. If somebody is uh, really prone to get stressed out by number tracking, Step count might not be the way to go. You might say, let's just try to break up our sedentary time throughout the day and work that way. I think yeah. I read something somewhere that you actually blink less when you're dieting. <laughs> I would believe that. I, I've never seen that, but uh, it, it is crazy. Like I said, even just the postural stuff, I think I, I find to be really interesting because... Uh, yeah, our, our hypothalamus knows better than we do. And it's like, eh, why don't you relax a little bit? Ease up with the muscle tone there. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people, and especially especially competitors, but they talk about how people towards the end of prep kind of almost lose their personality because they're not as animated when they speak. Maybe their voice doesn't have the influx that it usually does. And you, like you said, it's like, you know, you're sitting on the couch and you can't find your remote. And you're like, well, I guess I'm stuck in this, watching uh, this show because I'm not going to get up and and try to find it or change the channel. I'm just going to sit here because <laughs> I don't want to move. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to use that as an example. And, you know, if you're late in prep and you've just got your head kind of laying down on the side of your desk and someone says, Eric, the room's on fire. You know, your first response is, I mean, 
how bad of a fire are we talking? You know, it's, it's not to get out of the room. You're like, okay, well, let's let's not overreact here because I don't want to necessarily stand up. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it's really uh, it's really interesting to see how people will constrain energy expenditure in other areas. I've actually heard anecdotes of people who demonstrate like typical almost like foraging behaviors. I've heard of people who just like kind of like to walk around the grocery store, uh, even though it's an expensive energy expenditure. It's, uh, you know, that's certainly not a good place to be psychologically when you're dieting. But I, I have heard of some extremes when it comes to what kinds of physical activities are, are reduced and what kinds are increased. But it, it's a strange state. And that, that's one of the reasons that like, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I think bodybuilding's great. I've done it a lot. I, I, I think it it's a really positive thing for a lot of people. But you always you always have to watch that line where is bodybuilding something that's being, you know, bringing positivity into my life? Is this a fulfilling endeavor? Or is this potentially having a negative impact uh, on, on my my well-being, my, my psychological health and things like that? And bodybuilding itself is not inherently good or bad. It, it's really just what role it's playing in your life at that time. And there have been people who start out with a great relationship with the sport of bodybuilding and it takes a turn and it becomes a little bit counterproductive. And there are people who turn that back around as well, who, you know, for a while bodybuilding psychologically was not a good fit for them, but, you know, over time they find their way back into the sport in a much more fulfilling and healthy way. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to give a personal anecdote for this neat stuff. And I I think I've given this anecdote on our actual episode on neat as well. But like, I just think it's so powerful, especially for the people who might be coming to us maybe from your audience. Um, so in my contest prep in 2018, that was the last one that I did, I had such a hard time losing weight, and I couldn't figure out why. And it's because I didn't know about any of this. I hadn't really dove into the evidence based fitness community at that point to the to the degree that I have now. And I didn't know about need. I didn't even know what a step count was because Apple watches just weren't as either weren't as popular or I just wasn't aware of it. It was probably the latter. Um, but I had such a hard time losing weight. And here's what happened. I would do my morning cardio. I would come and just sloth on my couch and like eat breakfast and and just try to get through some work before I went to the gym, went to the gym, did my second cardio and came back and guess what I did for the rest of the evening? I would just sit in a chair and I was done for the day. And if I had known that cleaning my apartment at the time would have helped me to lose that weight or not letting it turn into a total pig pen, like that would have been really great for a lot of reasons. But I didn't know that. And so the last couple of times that I've actually dieted and they weren't for contest prep, but they were just cut like small cuts just to lose some body fat. Uh, I've noticed such a big difference. I, I do think still I, I have a somewhat hard time losing weight still, but that's because I know myself now as a big adapter in terms of meat and I can feel myself now and I'm aware of how lazy I get. And it makes me so angry because I like don't want to be that lazy. But when I'm in the diet, I'm like, I am not getting up today. And when you said, you know, those people that look at their watch and they're like, oh, shit, my steps are low. That's pretty much me a lot of the time. And so I know where I'm at and step count helps keep me super accountable, which is great. And so that's something I've incorporated into my life that has definitely changed the game for dieting for me. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, for some people, like I said, the step count can be great because it's an objective number. It's just like, hey, get your steps in today, easy. They can see it. There's kind of that uh, that built-in reward system where where you, you know you see it going up throughout the day. You feel like you're getting some accomplishments, but you know, there there are some people who it's just a little bit. It's just too many numbers to track on. They, they kind of feel like they're a hamster in a wheel, you know. So it's all about finding those strategies that are best for you. But you know, you mentioned that you've learned about these topics, and now it's giving you useful information. You know that you have to be mindful about your non-exercise activity when you're doing weight loss uh, attempts. I'm the same way. I have to do a lot more walking uh, if I'm trying to have a successful weight loss attempt. But another valuable thing about learning about these topics is, you know, I've had pe- like so. I did a, a prep right at the beginning of grad school, and then I did a prep a few years later. And I didn't know about much of this stuff the first time, and I knew about all this stuff the second time. And I didn't even really do any better. I like I did not prevent a reduction in testosterone or thyroid hormone. I may have kind of prevented a reduction in NEAT, but only because I intentionally went out and did non-exercise activity. So... Uh, it's not that I did anything that was substantially better. It's just that I knew what to expect. And so it was, it was such a, it was so much more pleasant in terms of the subjective experience. It wasn't as jarring. It wasn't as frightening when you're like, oh, hey, I clearly have several different hormones that are, uh, you know, dysregulated. Uh, is that going to stop? <laughs> is, is that a bad thing that I need to get like medical attention for? It's just knowing what to expect when you go into it uh, can be so helpful and so reassuring in that process because you're not going to feel great even if you do everything by the book. Like if you're getting lean enough that you're going to go be competitive in a, in a highly competitive, highly competitive uh, physique sport, it's not going to be comfortable. So, so knowing what to expect going into that or going into any ambitious fat loss attempt I think is a really helpful thing even if it doesn't really change what you're doing all that much. I think that's super important. And Marissa and I have talked about this again with our lifestyle clients, kind of setting up those expectations for a fat loss phase. Like here are some of the things you should expect. Like you probably won't lose weight as quickly as you expect. You know, we might have to increase cardio. But another thing that we have to tell clients sometimes is, hey, you're going to get hungry. And, you know, that's going to be part of the process. It doesn't mean we're starving you. It doesn't mean that we're bad coaches. It just means that your body's adapting and we're going to have to make some changes. And yes, of course, there are things that you can do to kind of mitigate that hunger and steps that we can take. Um, but I think that that's super important. And, and definitely with prep, you know, going through a second, third time, it's kind of like, all right, I know I'm going to feel like shit. Um, I know that this is going to happen. And here are some of the things I can do to combat it. But at the end, it's, it's still going to suck. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been really encouraged, uh, you know, being in this area for a while. I'm seeing more and more coaches who approach hunger differently, a little bit more like you're describing. And I think that's a much more positive way to approach hunger. So there are going to be some some goals uh, for body composition where you could say, oh, yeah, well, we can intervene move some food selection around, change meal size, meal frequency, we might be able to actually fight this hunger uh, and, you know, better maintain satiety. But for any goal where there's going to be a lot of goals where hunger is an inevitable part of the process if we succeed. So it's actually more a marker of success than failure. Uh, But there's such a negative uh, emotional connection to hunger that it really freaks people out. I mean, people 
they start to become hungry and they're like, oh, this is terrible. It takes up so much of their mental energy and it puts them in such a bad psychological state. And they think, what are we doing wrong? Something isn't working here. How are we going to fix this problem? And I say, you know, what problem? You know, like, like I don't say it that way because I, I, you know, I try to be more uh, uh, understanding and accommodating, but say like, let's reframe the way that we look at hunger because this is a, a little bit of biofeedback that we can use. This is telling us, okay, we're in an energy deficit. You know, we, we, we don't have a ton of food coming in every day. We don't have an abundance of dietary energy, but we, that was part of the plan from the start, you know, with, with a, an ambitious weight loss goal. So I try to reframe hunger in a way and say, well, we could do some things to mitigate that. And that's fine. We can, we can approach that, but let's not give hunger, uh, more power over us than it deserves. Let's not let this be something that dictates our day-to-day uh, mood state and brings us a lot of negativity because uh, to some extent we have to uh, try to psychologically uncouple hunger from the stress and the negative emotions that come with hunger. You know, we're, we're kind of naturally inclined to to really freak out a little bit when we have hunger as we're like, oh, I it's it's a survival mechanism. We, you know, we we should be a little bit worried when we're unable to get food in from a you know evolutionary perspective. But we know better than that. We kind of logic our way through it and say we know we're not going to starve to death. We know we have enough calories to be healthy and enough nutrients to be healthy. So let's objectively look at that hunger and see if we can uh, reduce the amount of power it has over us. So I, I've been seeing a lot of people talk about hunger that way, and I think it's a good way to do it. I love the idea of reframing and Marissa and I have talked about this again in our, in our bodybuilding podcast or episode, but we talk a lot about how like, yeah, prep is going to suck. You're going to feel hungry. You're going to feel tired. But if we focus on that and all we do is think about the negatives, then, you know, you're not going to have a very positive experience with this and neither are the people around you. So again, trying to reframe and thinking like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this voluntarily. Like no one is forcing me to do this. This is a choice. Um, it's actually kind of, I mean, it's a huge privilege if you think about it. Um, but also just kind of like, Hey, just because I'm suffering doesn't mean everyone around me has to as well. Um, so I think that that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, uh, one of the things that I really like to talk about with clients when it comes to managing hunger is like you said, not making hunger the enemy. But what I find is that a lot of times people tend to, if they don't think about it and they don't pause, they believe that when they feel hunger, they immediately must act on it. And it's almost like this unconscious reaction of like, if hunger, then eat. And if you really separate that and just insert like a little pause in there to actually think about what is going on, then we can step back and say, I can just sit with this for a little bit and I can wait till my next meal time or I can wait till you know, I can have a snack. Um, And I think one of the things that often derails us so much from our diet is kind of that instinctual, like, I must now act on this. And I've kind of just taught just pausing and analyzing like, this is how I feel right now. It's not good. It's not bad. uh, But it is just the state of my being and then, you know, allowing that to be. And so I kind of just coin that with my clients, at least just sitting with your hunger. Um, So I really love that we've kind of talked about this as well. And when it does come to managing hunger, I think there are a couple of strategies that are good practice to do because we obviously can make dieting 
harder on ourselves by having a lot of, you know, processed foods or high calorie density foods in our diet and then trying to maintain a low calorie approach with that. So I think, you know, one of the switches that you mentioned earlier, just having more lower density foods, and that will also result in an increase of the thermic effect of food. So double positive there, and you might be able to manage some hunger. But of course, there is that not uh, just non-negotiable part of dieting, especially when it's extreme, that, you know, we, we really just can't get around. Um, so yeah, and I think if, uh, if either of you guys have anything to say, just interrupt me. <laughs> I was going to jump in just real quick. I know that we're going to talk about ways to mitigate metabolic ad- adaptation, but I think one of the things too, the, that it's like refeeds are almost this like psychological aspect of dieting that kind of help with hunger. So it's kind of like, okay, I know that if I have five days of being super strict with my diet, I can just make it. And then, you know, come day five, I get a little bit of extra carbs. I know I'm going to feel a little bit better. And that has a huge psychological aspect for, for athletes or just anyone who's dieting. So I think that that's super important for coaches too, to think about. And that's why a lot of good coaches want that biofeedback. Like, hey, we want to know how your hunger is. We want to know how your energy levels are throughout the day, how your training is, and like just, you know, how's your how's your sleep, all of that. We want that biofeedback, and I think that that helps. Sorry, my animals are out of control right now under my desk. Um, but just kind of taking into consideration all of those things will kind of help with diet strategies and what you're going to implement. Yeah. So let's let's get into the uh, the ways we could potentially mitigate metabolic adaptation with that and on that note. And I think one thing that I wanted to touch on a little bit earlier that I'll kind of lead off with is when we're talking about NEAT, I think there's, you know, we some people tend to frame that as like the holy grail of this will fix metabolic adaptation, just get your step count higher, like just, you know, just mitigate it by moving more and you'll be able to be just fine. And I think there's two different populations that we're really speaking to today. And for one, it does solve a lot of issues that at least I've seen with clients. Um, And that is just the lifestyle population where if you're working a nine to five, a sedentary job, and you're eating a low calorie diet, you're sticking to it pretty well, and you're not seeing much movement. If we say go on a couple of 10 minute walks throughout the day or get your step count up or however you like to quantify that. A lot of times that can get things moving and get get things kickstarted once you start to pay attention to that variable. But then we have the other situation where we talked about contest prep and all of these hormonal and you know neuroendocrine things that are going on that are really downregulating in that low body fat state. And so even though we're doing the cardio, we're doing the low calorie diet and we're working really hard at that, there still may be some metabolic adaptation that we see that's slowing down weight loss more than we'd like. And so I kind of wanted to just lead off with that to make the distinction between the two populations that we're talking about. Because just because we're saying managing your set count won't necessarily help in a contest prep scenario or, you know, may, may have diminished returns in a contest prep scenario doesn't mean that it couldn't possibly be your turning point as a lifestyle client who's at a plateau. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I like to bring up in this discussion about mitigating metabolic adaptation is I kind of look at it the other way. Uh, 
I don't necessarily say, hey, how are we going to mitigate this? How are we going to stop it? How are we going to reverse it? Anything like that. But what I look at is what are ways that we could exacerbate the, these problems? You know, let's make sure we're not doing the things that are common, but the things that make these problems worse, right? So, I mean, is there much we can do to directly impact the hypothalamus here? Not really. Uh, I mean, exogenous leptin would help, uh, but <laughs> that's not really feasible. Uh, you know, really, we've got the, the main drivers here are lower body fat and lower caloric intake. And, and so anything that's going outside of manipulating those things, probably not going to have a big impact on mitigating the effects. But you could say, well, okay, what are some of the uh, ramifications of metabolic adaptation? You might worry about stalled fat loss. And that's where proactively increasing your NEAT could be a helpful thing. You know, we, we could expect that because of what's going on with the hypothalamus, NEAT might uh, drop without us even really recognizing it or noticing it. So we can be proactive and intervene there. We can prevent that from becoming a huge deal. It, we can just fail, we, we can avoid slipping into that habit of totally downregulating non exercise activity, uh, which is exacerbating the issue. Same thing goes, we might worry during with, with metabolic adaptation as we see these hormonal effects, uh, we see how it affects energy levels, we might worry about the loss of lean mass. So we want to make sure that we're structuring uh, our resistance training in a really effective way. So we want to make sure we have adequate intensity and volume to induce the training adaptations we're looking for, but not so much volume that we've completely uh, created a mismatch between the energy we have available and the energy that our program is going to require from us. So a sensible resistance training program. Uh, sometimes sex hormones can take an, kind of an extra dip if we go excessively low on dietary fat. So that's another thing where it's like, well, let's not exacerbate these issues by having a macronutrient distribution that's totally out of whack. Let's make sure that we have enough fat to support sex hormone production. Let's make sure we have enough protein to support lean mass retention. And if possible, let's make sure we have enough carbohydrate to make sure that we're fueling our workouts. And a nice bonus about carbohydrate is that carbohydrate also is kind of directly linked to leptin. So uh, if we have you know an experimental condition where we have a huge increase in carb intake, we will see an acute increase in leptin as well. So you could see that each of the macronutrients, if we have a, a sensible balance of them, we can avoid exacerbating some of these issues, which, of course, uh, we want to avoid doing that as much as possible. And when it comes to just uh, strategically planning things out, one of the biggest things we can do, in my opinion, is making sure that we don't have an excessively large caloric deficit. Now we're talking about actually getting closer to mitigating, right? We're talking about actually influencing these things that truly do feed back into the, the hypothalamus. So an enormous energy deficit could potentially, uh, you know, augment some of these issues, make them a little bit more pronounced, more notable. So I think having a sensible calorie deficit where you're still making, you know, time efficient progress towards your goal, but you don't have such a large caloric deficit that you are, uh, you know, feeding into these problems and making them larger than they need to be. So uh, there's nothing we can do about the fact that fat stores are going down. That is the goal. So <laughs> there's not, not much we can do about that. But when it comes to how big the deficit is, that is something that we can e intervene on and actually manage that. Uh, the final thing that comes up a lot, oh, I should mention sometimes people get a little bit 
too uh people lean a little bit too hard on cardio when they're doing a fat loss phase and they can get into a situation where we see that pretty chronically uh there, there's a lot of cord like higher cortisol than there would otherwise be to due to just this really excessive training volume it's kind of one of the first markers of like leading toward like a overreaching or potentially even overtraining syndrome i forget if that term is still in use but it's a pretty classic hallmark of just a really excessive training volume relative to recovery capacity. So when that cortisol is high, the reason that might matter in this context is because cortisol and leptin have opposing effects on the hypothalamus. So if you have low leptin, you could actually make that even a little bit worse by having chronically really high cortisol. So managing the overall training load, especially with cardio and managing psychogenic stress, just life stressors can potentially be a helpful thing. So uh, there are a few things we can do there. And then strategically, again, one of the, the things we want to avoid, uh, not just for metabolic adaptation, but just for peace of mind and, and quality of life, we don't. We want to be really strategic about how long we're pushing. So if you ever run into somebody who is constantly eating super low calories, constantly maintaining a super low body fat, uh, that's not a great place to be uh, for metabolic reasons in terms of just, you know, promoting, you know, good general metabolic health and, and making sure that you're, you know, in that chronically uh, deprived state, it's just not a good place to be. It's not great for quality of life. And, and so I usually tell people this whole metabolic adaptation thing, even in, in the extreme cases, right? So like a, a physique athlete getting ready for a show, is it necessarily terrible to have, you know, lower test for a few months, every couple of years, lower thyroid hormone for a few months, every couple of years, maybe not, but I don't think it's necessarily where we want to spend the next 15 years of our life. You know, this is a temporary state that is intended to be temporary. So you want to make sure that you're uh, not having a huge caloric deficit, but also being mindful of how lean are we getting and how frequently and how long are we staying there? And you, you want to have some balance in terms of the overall approach there. So those are the main things that come to mind. And then, of course, one thing that's, that's really frequently discussed is uh, refeeds and diet breaks. Looking at refeeds, I'm just, I, I used to have some kind of hope that maybe like a two or three day refeed might be enough to increase leptin for a long enough time to actually induce uh, some kind of downstream physiological uh, effects that all lead back to the hypothalamus. Uh, I'm kind of losing hope in that. Uh, I think refeeds can have other purposes when it comes to refilling glycogen, uh, giving a little bit of dietary flexibility within the week. Uh, so I wouldn't say that there is no application for refeeds, but the idea that they are physiologically attenuating metabolic adaptations, as more research has come out, I've, I've lost uh, I've lost my enthusiasm about that particular uh, potential strategy. Diet breaks, I think, are a little bit more plausible. They're a little bit more promising, but they're there's still a lot more research needed before we can say that they are meaningfully impacting things like leptin and metabolic rate in a way that's going to really tangibly impact fat loss success. What I would say based on the evidence is, you know, there is hope for that. There is some potential for that, but it, it, it I don't want to oversell that evidence. Uh, some studies have shown more efficacious fat loss uh, attempts there, you know, better fat loss effects, maintenance of, of total daily energy expenditure when these, you know, longer two-week diet breaks are are uh, incorporated into the approach. 
but other studies have used pretty long diet breaks that are you know a full week that haven't really done much physiologically but the psychologic aspects are also promising with diet breaks so a one or two week diet break periodically seems to help out a little bit when it comes to things like hunger and desire to eat so it could be something that helps out with adherence potentially during a, a long fat loss uh, attempt the one thing to keep in mind there is you got to use those carefully. They, they have to be a targeted strategy based on the individual. So we've all worked with individuals who they're so enthusiastic about the goal that any roadblock, any speed bump that slows them down is going to frustrate and demotivate, right? So we want to make sure that if we've got somebody who's really enthusiastic and just really wants to get to that goal and doesn't want to slow down, for that individual, I actually wouldn't even bother with a diet break because I think the potential benefit is not enough to justify the potential downside of that demotivating factor of slowing someone down. So if I've got somebody in a groove, could they maybe get some small benefit from a diet break? Possibly, but we, we've got this role going. They're enthusiastic. They're motivated. Let's just leave it. Uh, so sometimes... You have to be really uh, judicious and really careful about how you implement those. But for a lot of clients, it can be a really refreshing thing to have a diet break of a week or two. And maybe it's doing something physiologically. You could have really good arguments about that in both directions. Um, but there is some evidence that there's some psychological things going on as well that make the experience a little bit subjectively uh, a little bit less terrible uh, when doing a fat loss attempt and uh, could potentially support adherence as well. So, you know, we think about, like I said, circling back, it's not necessarily how are we going to stop metabolic adaptation dead in its tracks, but how can we avoid the things that we're a little bit concerned about? So how can we make sure that we're not exacerbating drops in sex hormones, uh, you know, uh, the effects of low leptin, uh, you know, stalls in fat loss? There are drops in non-exercise activity. Some of these things we can we can have strategies in place to ensure the overall success of the diet and to make the process hopefully a, a little bit more enjoyable and uh, make sure we're not uh, contributing to unnecessary amounts of these uh, these side effects that we associate with metabolic adaptation. Yeah, that's that's very well said. And I think just one thing that I want to add on, because there were a lot of really great points in that. I think the the one on training volume and just not overdoing your training volume approach really got me thinking about something that I really love to harp on. And that is the fact that stress, I like to talk about stress as a cumulative thing in your life. So it's not just the work stress is separate and the exercise stress that your body experiences is separate and then the dieting stress that you experience is separate. No, it's all together. So those things compound. And so when you are dieting, as we've talked about, if your cortisol is chronically high, that's going to also, you know, mess with the hypothalamus and the signals that it's putting out for these metabolic adaptation things that we're experiencing. And so when we're talking about managing stress, it's not just, oh, do some deep breathing, make sure you sleep, but it's also what is your training look like in the gym? What's that total training load? And so a lot of times what I've seen and mistakes that I've seen people make 
in the past with dieting and a mistake I've even made in the past with dieting is trying to do more resistance training in a fat loss phase, especially like in the deep, deep parts, because the train of thought there, it almost seems logical enough of, oh, well, I just need to do more work to see more results. Uh, but when we have, you know, all of these other moving parts and we're already pushing a calorie deficit so much, is that actually productive? And the answer to that is usually no, because what, what are we really achieving there? We're increasing the total stress of all of the load that we have with training, cardio, diet, and we're probably exacerbating that calorie deficit to be maybe a little too large, like you said, and that can make those types of symptoms that we see with metabolic adaptation more pronounced than they need to be. And so one thing that I encourage in a fat loss phase, especially if it's getting really, really deep into that fat loss phase is to actually tweak training volume down a little bit, especially if you are doing a decent bit of cardio to kind of balance that total stress load out and to really look at the stress in your life with everything encompassing, even if like you catch a cold, like that's all stress. And to look at that as a cumulative thing rather than each component as separate. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I I do when I'm getting into those kind of you know deep in a fat loss phase, some of these metabolic adaptation things are starting to to show up. I do tend to uh to drop training load, training volume or training volume. I try to maintain intensity as much as I can, uh, but training volume takes a a little bit of a backseat to make sure that we are going in the gym and doing an appropriate amount of training for what we've got the energy for, you know, not trying to, uh, to push things for, for more than what we've, we've got in the tank. Uh, and it, like you said, managing the other stress in life is, is similarly critically important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just overall, all of those ways that we quote unquote, mitigate metabolic adaptation. Um, touching on refeeds a little bit, I, that was actually something that I wanted to ask and make sure I didn't say something that just flew in the face of research. So it's good that you you brought that up. When we have that acute, uh, you know, that acute metabolic adaptation that's more regulated by our energy intake, the thought process and the logical argument will be, well, if we throw in a couple of days of a refeed, then that acute metabolic adaptation should go away. And so what you're saying, and just to confirm that this is correct, that when we do use these refeeds, the effects that we're seeing might be more linked to maybe the, the non-exercise activity from the energy we, we gain from it, or psychologically the energy that we gain from refeeds versus actually closing that gap and say like metabolic rate. Yeah, I, I think the evidence is starting to tell us more and more that, uh, you know, because you have to keep in mind, we're kind of stealing calories from other days to add them to these these refeed days. That it, what seems to be most critical for the fat loss throughout that process is the cumulative weekly energy deficit. Um, there doesn't seem to be a huge physiological advantage related to weight loss from, you know, uh, short-term refeeds. Doesn't seem to have a pronounced and sustained effect on resting metabolic rate or non-exercise activity. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think one of the things you have to think about is, you know, so there, there are studies, by the way, if we do a really high carb refeed for, you know, one or two or three days, there are studies saying, yeah, your cat, your energy expenditure goes up, but you also just ate a ton more calories, and and it was a bad deal if the if the purpose is to to lose fat. 
So uh, physiologically, it doesn't look like there's a major fat loss advantage to be gained from from these short-term refeeds. But like I said, there are some other benefits you might see. So, you know, better training for a day or two after a a refeed because you have more glycogen. Uh, Psychological benefits from having a little more dietary flexibility uh, on certain days. And then non-exercise activity is interesting because it's partly volitional and partly non-volitional, right? So are you going to have a tangible, you know, a meaningful increase in fidgeting or non-volitional activity because you had refeeds and that's going to be big enough to really alter your fat loss trajectory? Probably not. But, you know, I I can't discount that for some people, you know, you do a refeed, it puts you in a great mood. Uh, You're a little bit more active throughout the day because you've got a little more pep in your step. I think that could be a believable thing, but I I just certainly don't want to oversell the physiological side of refeeds for fat loss because uh, it is a, I can tell you with great certainty that anecdotally, like, you know, Eric Helms has had a lot of success with his physique athletes doing them. And potentially there are more benefits to be had when you start getting into that special population of really, really lean people who are in a big deficit. So one of the challenges we're, we're trying to, most of the refeed literature, we're looking at people who, you know, the typical bar, bodybuilder would say, you don't really need a refeed yet. You know, some, a lot of people don't break out the refeeds until, you know, it's like in, in case of emergency, break the glass and take a refeed, like laid and prep. So, you know, you could have a, a very interesting discussion in which someone who's very in favor of refeeds says, hey, well, they're trying to solve a problem with refeeds, but they're not studying it in people who actually have the problems that we're trying to solve here. So, uh, you know, I I wouldn't close the door on it. I think uh, back when I was purely a scientist by by trade, uh, you know, I'd tie myself in knots over, you know, no, there has to be one single answer to that. But now that I spend a lot more time on the practical side of things, I say, okay, well, this is a tool in the toolkit. There's a logical rationale for using it in a lot of different ways. There is really minimal downside or minimal cost. So I think it's good to have some of these tools in the toolkit, uh, you know, so refeeds, diet breaks, things like that, where we say for the right client at the right time, this might make sense. Uh, And until we have more evidence in relevant populations, I I think it's best to become comfortable with that interpretation, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I think... uh... Yeah, this is just overall a really, really great discussion on metabolic adaptation, using refeeds, diet breaks. I do want to just quickly define for anyone who's listening. It's like, I don't know what that is, or I thought a refeed was a cheat meal. Uh, Refeed is a tracked higher calorie day that's typically a little bit higher in carbohydrates and the proportion of carbohydrates that you use. Um, And diet breaks are similar, but those are going to be for a stretch of one or two weeks. Um, And refeeds are typically used for anywhere from like one to three days at a time for the purposes that that we mentioned that are may may or may not be proven to work. But, um, yeah, so overall, I think that this was a super valuable conversation about metabolic adaptation. Hopefully you, the listener is listening to this and you don't think that you're screwed with metabolic adaptation anymore. And you know that there are things that you can do to manage it, especially if you're a lifestyle client, you know, just, I think one of the big takeaways that you can really draw from this episode is 
just making sure to pay attention to your variables. Um, there's a lot of different moving parts when it comes to fat loss. And we've, we've touched on this before on our show a lot, but just know that, you know, unless you are turning over every stone, there might be something that you haven't seen that could be the game changer in your fat loss journey. And, you know, there are ways to do those things without driving yourself crazy, tracking every single number and every single metric that you could possibly think of. However, there at a certain point, there does become this value to data and numerical data uh, when you maybe are at a stall and you need to find the way to, to break that. And so I think understanding the value of measurement and understanding that you can turn over more and more and more stones and manage all of those variables but also understanding practically what those numbers mean is something that I really like to harp on. So like when we talk about step count, that was one where Eric, you were very, uh, very, I guess, intentional about saying like a lot of people don't like having that additional number to add to their day. And I, I definitely like to use this example to talk about, okay, well, how do we take what this number has showed us into the practical application of our lives? Because we are not meant to operate by numbers every day for the rest of our life with macros or with step counts. So what behaviors does your step count lend to? You know, are you parking farther from the grocery store? Are you taking the stairs up to your apartment? Are you taking a couple laps around your house and during your work breaks um, or, you know, getting up to stretch or move around a little bit more often throughout the day? All of those things add up. And so if you look at, okay, here's the number, but what's the behavior behind that? Same thing with diet, you know, what, what these macros are saying, what am I doing with these macros? What foods am I eating? How am I portioning? And kind of taking the meaning from that to understand how you can quote unquote mitigate metabolic adaptation using air quotes here. Uh, but, you know, have the most successful body composition change and fat loss results and maintenance of that by learning what those numbers taught you to keep those behaviors long term. Absolutely. Drop, drop my mic, I guess. <laughs> awesome. So Eric, is there anything that we are missing or anything you'd like to add on metabolic adaptation before we wrap this episode up? No, I would just say um, I get a lot of messages from people who are worried about metabolic adaptation. It's not something to be worried about. It's something to plan for, to, to kind of forecast on the road ahead, uh, depending on what your fitness goals are at any given time. If you get to a point where you're concerned about metabolic adaptation, uh, I have written an article, strongerbyscience.com slash metabolic dash adaptation. And it's really comprehensive. It's way longer than any article I ever hope to write again. But <laughs> I would encourage people to go to that article for a really deep dive into exactly what's going on, a real thorough description of what you can and can't do about it. And I think a lot of times I'll send people there and it'll just give them a little bit of peace of mind. Here are the things you can control. Here are the things you can't. But most importantly, this isn't something to be feared or worried about. So uh, I think that's my, my biggest takeaway is this is a physiological adaptation. If we spend a lot of time in the cold, we adapt to it. If we spend a lot of time in heat, we adapt to it. If we spend a lot of time in a deficit, losing body fat, we adapt to it as well. We don't have to view these things as... Uh, disastrous in nature. The body adapts to what we throw at it. 
and that applies to weight loss as well. Yeah, and I think before we close out the episode, I just wanted to say one thing that I think I forgot to touch on is with that, the body adapts to what you throw at it. Uh, the metabolism adapts upwards as well. And that's, you know, to varying degrees with different people. But just because you've, your metabolic, your metabolism, sorry, has adapted downwards due to this dieting phase, that doesn't mean that you're not going to see it upregulate when you get calories back in your system. So that's where we, start the conversation that could be another hour long about reverse dieting and you know we do we do (laughs) um and getting your calories back up spending time at maintenance and why that kind of stuff is so important and i guess we'll just have to leave you guys at a cliffhanger with that because we just don't want this to be a two and a half hour long episode (laughs) yeah and eric just real briefly would you recommend gen pop to get blood work like routine blood work Um, if they're constantly dieting or if they're worried, is that something that you would recommend or is there something else? I mean, maybe this is in the article and I should just, again, cliffhanger, let them read it. (laughs) We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it'll definitely be in the show notes. You know, uh, it's never bad to have more information. If I have a client who's ever, you know, really, really concerned about it, I'll say, hey, to, to put your mind at ease, let, you know, you can go get some blood work and, and see what it looks like. But for me, like, I don't do it anymore for this type of thing, just because uh, I've been there and I've said like, oh, <laughs> I, I clearly can tell I have low thyroid hormone, low testosterone, like I can feel it. And then I went to the doctor. I said, Hey, can you tell me exactly how low my thyroid hormone and testosterone are? And they say, Oh, wow. Very low off the charts in a bad way. <laughs> and I, so it, you start to feel it and you say, okay, this is, uh, I, I understand now. Uh, but you know, if you're ever concerned, a visit to a medical professional is, is never a bad idea. If, if nothing else, it'll give you the peace of mind and, and help you confirm what you suspect, what you uh, expected. So maybe just to have baseline numbers, but then would you recommend maybe if someone is feeling not so great when they are eating a decent amount, that maybe that would be an indication to go get some blood work drawn? Yeah, I would say, you know, my threshold for getting blood work done is like, are you experiencing something that doesn't totally make sense you know so like if you're dieting really hard and you're hungry and lethargic and your libido is down yeah i mean that's that's kind of (laughs) that's kind of the process at a certain at a certain point but if you're still feeling that way and you've been in a caloric deficit and you've gained seven or eight pounds and you're eating you know probably like a two or three hundred calorie surplus and it's been months at that point i'd say hey something seems this is actually perplexing. This doesn't intuitively make a lot of sense to me. That would be a time where I might go and check it out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Christina, (laughs) do you want to take the last question? I saw you. (laughs) And I was like, are you going to get it? Um, So Eric, we asked all of our guests at the end of each episode, if you could give just one tip or one piece of advice for someone who is just looking to live an overall healthy and sustainable lifestyle, what would that be? It would be, uh, you got to learn to, to work with yourself instead of working against yourself. Uh, so recently I've gotten really into secular Buddhism. Uh, I've been reading a ton of books by somebody named Karma Yeshi Rabge, who's a, a monk out in India. 
And uh, the biggest takeaway I've gotten, it's, you know, none of it has anything to do with fitness technically, but every time I read it, I feel like I'm getting a fitness related lesson uh, of just kind of being kind to yourself, working with yourself instead of against yourself. You know, so many people treat their fitness journey as an expression of self-punishment, you know, and and it doesn't have to be that way. I think uh, approaching fitness and nutrition in a really mindful way, uh, in a way that uh, allows for a lot of compassion for yourself and a lot of, uh, you know, taking care of yourself, being kind to yourself. Uh, it's just a way better way to do it. It's a much more enjoyable process when you're working uh, with yourself instead of against yourself. So uh, if you can manage to find some kind of mindset or perspective that gets everybody on the same team and you feel like you're really thriving in your fitness journey, that that's where you want to be. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> That was awesome. Well, guys, um, we really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Um, It was a really great conversation. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can find both of us on Instagram. You can find me at Christy Lynn Fit and Marissa is at Marissa Fitness. And Eric, where can our audience find you? Uh, you can find me at strongerbyscience.com or you can find me at uh, on Instagram. My handle is at Trexler Fitness. Awesome. And all of those will be in the show notes and as well as the article that you referenced. And um, thank you guys just so much for listening and we hope to see you back next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Barbell Lifestyle Podcast and we hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something from it. Please remember that Christina and I are not medical professionals, so if you're going to make any changes to your exercise or nutrition routines, please consult with your doctor or medical team first. Finally, we would love you even more than we already do if you took the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews are how this podcast moves up the ranks and becomes accessible to even more people. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday here at the Barbell Lifestyle Podcast.